Well, it's good to be back with everyone tonight uh, as we continue here in Acts. Uh, tonight we are in chapter 16 uh, as we continue to look at how, how God was at work in the birth of the early church. Uh, last week, if you all were here, you recall that Jeff led us through uh, the, the beginning of the second missionary journey for Paul. And so uh, we learned how Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement as they prepared for the second missionary journey, uh, disagreement being over John Mark and uh, if he should go on this second journey with them. Uh, Paul ended up taking Silas uh, along with him while, uh, while Barnabas uh, continued, continued on with John Mark. And so we'll, we'll see tonight, uh, and continuing from last week, how uh, Paul and Silas ended up uh, joined, being joined by Timothy as they continued on the journey. Uh, and as we saw, Jeff led us in looking at how uh, these men on their missionary journey were prevented from ministering in Asia, and the Lord ended up leading him on toward Macedonia after Paul received that vision from the man of Macedonia, inviting them or asking, pleading for their help, a vision uh, that would lead them to, to conclude that God was telling them to take the gospel into Macedonia. And so we'll look at the remainder of chapter 16 today, and we'll see how the faithfulness of Paul and his companions positioned them to be participants in God's great purposes. And as we look at them participating in God's purposes, we'll see how it serves as a model for us and our own faithfulness to what God is calling us to do. Okay? Everyone with me? All right. So let's begin looking at Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And so we see here that after they get this call to Macedonia, what, what do Paul and his companions do? Once they see the vision, it says here that they immediately sought to go into Macedonia. And notice the language there uh, when it says that we, we sought. There's a change in pronouns there from speaking about they to we. And that's because Luke, who is the author of Acts, ends up joining Paul, Silas, and Timothy, most likely in, in the city of Troas. And so when, when these men discern God's will, they immediately acted on it. So they didn't get a word from God and deliberate about it. They didn't procrastinate, but they were faithful to act quickly and to obey. And so as we look at, at the map here, we'll, you see that they have made this missionary journey moving out of Asia because they were forbidden to speak the word there by the Holy Spirit, and they ended up in Troas. 
And so you, with, with the, uh, there in the rectangle, you'll see the city of Troas. And so they set out from there, which was probably a two days journey to Samothrace. And so where they ended up probably spending the night and then heading on the next day to Neapolis, which is the port city of, of Philippi up there in the corner. And so as we think about the immediate action of these men as they responded to God's call, it helps us to think about God's calling on our lives. And so as we think about what God has called us to do in obedience to what his purposes are for us, the first step in fulfilling a clear calling from God is to take action, is to move. And so how many of us have felt and believed that God was calling us to do something, but we hesitated, we did not act? And so often we fail to act immediately because circumstances are not ideal. And so we, I think that we are, we're conditioned to want ideal circumstances before we can step out in faith. But that's not the way God often acts. And so the question that we really have to uh, ask ourselves is, uh, are ideal conditions necessary uh, to us to, to obey God, for us to obey God? And so is God really looking for ideal circumstances for us to act in obedience? Uh, one passage that I think is very helpful as we think about how ideal, waiting for ideal circumstances prevents us from following God's will is Ecclesiastes 11, 4 and 5. And this is speaking uh, from a perspective of a former, talking about he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how the bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. And so how often are we missing opportunities that God is calling us to because we're waiting for circumstances to be just the way that we want? Waiting for the ideal situation before you commit to acting on what God has said will keep you from accomplishing his will and it will keep you from experiencing his work in your life and his work in the lives of those around you. And so one question to ponder is, has God clearly called you to do something for his purposes? And what keeps you from stepping out and acting on what you've concluded God has called you to do? So there are many things that, that may prevent us. It could be fear. It could be waiting for those ideal circumstances. It could be we think that timing is not correct. But the thing is that if God has called us to do something, as we see modeled in the lives of these men, he, he desires for us to act immediately. So as they were faithful to go, we need to be faithful to do the same. Let's move on to Acts uh, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us.
And so here they are in the city of Philippi. They had, had come to the city, and, and unlike typical, typically when they went into a city, they preached in a synagogue where there was no synagogue in Philippi. There were likely very few Jews in this city. Philippi was a, was a, a colony, a Roman colony, that was likely very similar to Rome. Uh, it, it was a, a merchant center. As we see, Lydia was a businesswoman who, who sold uh, purple fabric. And in, the ancient, in ancient times, purple fabric was very expensive. It was, it was very popular for, for royalty, and it was, it was costly. And so Lydia likely was, was a person of means. She, she likely uh, had some, some wealth. Uh, we know that she had a home large enough to, 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 to house these men. And so she was a person who probably had some means. Uh, she was also a Gentile. And though she was not a, uh, she was not a, Jew, a Jewish believer, she was not a Jewish convert, but she was one who worshipped God. She was a worshiper of God with the Jews. And so, as, as we said, uh, she was a person who uh, had means, but what would that means profit her if she did not know the way to God? So Paul was able to speak the gospel to Lydia, and Lydia listened. It says that the Lord opened her heart to respond. And so as we think about the activity of God in this situation with Lydia, it's a reminder that we cannot open anyone's heart to receive the gospel. As as faithful ambassadors of Christ, we can only share the gospel. But God has to move upon the heart for the person to receive it. And so Paul's faithfulness to speak the gospel will lead Lydia's household to hear and to respond as well. And I love the way it presents it here. It says that the Lord opened. So basically, Paul spoke the gospel. The Lord opened Lydia's heart and Lydia responded to what was spoken to her. So as we think about this. It leads me to Romans 10, verses 13 through 15. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And so a question to ponder, where is God calling you to speak the gospel? Have you ever thought that by sharing the gospel, you position yourself like Paul and his companions, you position yourself to be part of God's activity as he opens the hearts of men and women who come to faith? Consider that. How often are we missing opportunities to be a part of what God is doing in the world because we fail to take the gospel? Are we failing to take it to to co-workers? Are we failing to take it to neighbors? Are we even failing failing to take the gospel to members of our own family? So how can we be a part of God's mission by simply sharing the gospel? It's God who does the work of opening the hearts, but are we being faithful to plant the seed of the word of God? 
And so as we see that Paul and his companions showed faithfulness to God by being faithful to go, they showed faithfulness by being faithful to speak the gospel. Thirdly, they showed faithfulness by being faithful to God when they were opposed. So here in verses 16 and following, we'll read uh, what happened as, as Paul and, and, and his companions continued they continued the work of the ministry in the city. And so it says in verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this Many days, for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out at that very moment. And so sometime after Lydia's conversion, Paul and, and, and his companions are still about the work of going to the riverside to, to preach the gospel, likely on the Sabbath. And so they were, they were once again headed to this place when they encountered what can be summed up as demonic possession and demonic opposition. And so this would be a, a, to appear to be an effort by the enemy to come against what God was doing in that city. Remember that this was, this was, this was the first entry of the gospel from Paul's perspective into Europe. And so this was a city that, that was likely very dark. We see that, it, it, that obviously uh, there was demonic activity. We see that, uh, that it was a prosperous city, so it probably had a lot of the pitfalls that prosperity brings. And so this was a city that needed the gospel. And so Satan, no doubt, will come against God's activity or attempt to come against God's activity, especially when it's entering a place where it has not been before. And so Paul sought to be faithful here as, as this girl was walking around proclaiming, proclaiming what, what a statement that would be true. They were servants of the Most High God. They were declaring how they, uh, people could be saved. And so, but, but this was not just a girl. This was, this was very sinister. And so Paul sought to be faithful to protect God's reputation and the reputation of the gospel in the face of this opposition. And so think about it. If Paul had let the slave girl continue to, to declare these things, then the name of God and the message of the gospel could have been associated with demonic activity. And as a result, it could have been discredited. And so as we think about this, something to consider, as a representative of Christ, are you careful to avoid associations with people or practices or ideas that would bring question to the credibility of the gospel, especially especially when it comes time for you to share it, when it comes time for you to declare it? Are you associating with anyone or any activity that when you declare the gospel, it doesn't line up? It doesn't line up. And so this is what 
we ourselves need to be careful of. It may not be that it's associated with something that's clearly demonic, but we can certainly be associated with something that's ungodly. And what impact would that have on, on your reputation as an ambassador for Christ? And what impact would that have on God's reputation as you seek to bring a message of salvation to those who need it? Secondly, as we think about, the, as I mentioned, the, the, the city and the environment that this place was with this kind of demonic activity, uh, it, it makes you realize that this young girl uh, was not only uh, obviously possessed, but she was doubly victimized by owners who took advantage of her, wicked owners who took advantage of her. And so Paul delivered her from that, that demonic possession by, in the name of Christ. And so it, it helps us to think that as those who represent Christ, how is the love of God compelling us? How is the love God, of, of God compelling you to minister to the broken and to the victimized in our community? And what might the Lord have you do to reach out with the hope of the gospel to those who are suffering in this way? You see this victimization of this young girl. It makes, it makes me think of the victimization that we see today and things like uh, human trafficking and other things that, that were wicked people are taking advantage of, of young people or, or people who, who, have, uh, who are being uh, victimized with no means of justice. And so how can we carry the hope of the gospel into places like that? So here we see Paul being faithful against opposition, but his faithfulness and those of his companions in that opposition really had an impact, it had consequences. And so here we'll see in Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 34, we'll see how it brought affliction. And so in verses 19 through 24, we won't read all of that, but we'll see that the slave girl's masters were upset and they seized Paul and Silas and they brought them before the magistrates of the city. And so these magistrates were the officials of the city they represented Rome in this Roman colony. And they, if you're familiar with Roman law, Roman law was, was, was very burdensome in terms of uh, punishment and crime. And these magistrates had the authority to declare what kind of punishment would, would, would be incurred for certain crimes. They were the law in, in certain respects in terms of carrying it out. And so... They accused, these slave owners accused Paul and Silas of, of, of causing turmoil in the city, of causing a potential uprising in the city. And so these magistrates respond. And as a result, Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. And so we see that, uh, that, that they were dragged to the marketplace, stripped, beaten, and they end up in a dungeon-like prison with their feet secured in stocks. And so yet they were faithful in affliction by praying and singing hymns to God. And so let's look here uh, at verse 22. The crop, I'm sorry, let's actually jump down to 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake. 
so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so as they're being afflicted in prison, as a result of preaching the gospel, they, they responded not by complaining, they responded not by expressing regret or uh, desiring to, to, to leave and depart from the mission that God had called them to, but they responded by praying and singing. And God intervened with an earthquake. And so as a result, in thinking that the prisoners possibly were, were, were free, the, the jailer attempts to, to potentially kill himself. And so Paul intervenes and, and stops him from harming himself. And, and the jailer says one of the most important questions that you can ask is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And so he and his household were baptized. And so what the slave, what the slave owners of the slave girl, what the owners intended for harm, what the magistrates intended for harm, God meant for good. What they intended for evil, God meant for good. And so Paul and Silas ended up in prison, but as a result, another household in the city is saved. And so think about this uh, from a perspective of, of, of those uh, who, in a, in a day where we seek comfort, in a day where we seek convenience, in a, in a day where we want things to go well for us and, and where our plans won't be interrupted. These men immediately obeyed God when they got a calling. They sailed to, to a city that was uh, at least two days away. They, they preached in the city. They, they received beatings, were thrown into prison, and, and as a result, they see God at work. How many of us would have chosen that route as a way to glorify God? But yet these men see God at work, not just in, in the present, but, but in eternal ways, in eternal ways in this city. And so here we see that in being faithful to affliction, these men uh, have glorified God. And so we, we end up seeing them lastly being faithful to the brethren, faithful to the brethren. Let's look at verse 35. Now, when they came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words and the chief magistrates 
They were afraid when they had heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out to the prison, out of the prison, and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And so basically, when the chief magistrates had uh, the next day, they sent the policemen uh, to uh, where Paul and, and Silas were being were in custody, and they told them to release them. But Paul took issue with that. He, he said that we were basically we're Roman citizens. And so they, they beat us publicly, and they need to release us publicly. And so Paul, uh, again, we know, uh, is, is a Jew, obviously, but he had Roman citizenship. We don't know exactly how he was a Roman citizen, it's likely that his father was a, was a Roman citizen and that he was born into a family that had Roman citizenship. And so as a Roman citizen, he had certain rights in, in, in a Roman province. And one of those rights would be that as a, a Roman citizen could not be punished without a trial. And so obviously these magistrates had, had violated that by beating Paul and Silas and throwing them into prison without any, any sort of, of due process. And so now Paul is saying, you know, we were, we were treated unfairly publicly, and so these magistrates need to release us publicly in peace. And so the next morning, they sent a message to Paul to be released and instructed him to go in peace. And so here we see that uh, they didn't immediately depart after they were released. But what did they do? In verse, here in verse 39, it says that, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of prison and entered the house of Lydia. It's very interesting that after persecution that they would not just totally flee the city. They went to the house of Lydia. And so they returned to Lydia's house, and this was one of Paul's hallmarks of ministry, that he would go back and he would encourage the believers that he had led to the Lord. And in this case, this was believers where a, a whole church had been birthed. That Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had invested themselves in a city where God had done eternal work in establishing a church. And so Paul would later write to this church, and he would say, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ, Paul wrote this to the, to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1. And so their faithfulness as missionaries, faithfulness to God's call, positioned them to be participants in God's eternal activity. That God used these men to establish the church at Philippi. The question is, why were these men so faithful? Why were they faithful to go? Would we have been faithful to go? Would we have been faithful to set sail 
to go to Philippi? Why were they faithful to speak the gospel so boldly? Are we faithful to speak the gospel that boldly? Even though we, we don't have looming threats for preaching the gospel, are we faithful to speak that boldly to the person across the street, much less across the sea? Why were they faithful to, in, in affliction? Why were they faithful in persecution? Why were they faithful to the brethren, faithful enough to not flee the city, but to go back and to, to encourage the believers, as it said? Why were they faithful? It was because they knew who their Lord was. They knew that Jesus is Lord. The term Lord is used in this, in this way, kurios, more than 100 times in the book of Acts. More than 100 times they refer to the Lord as kurios, which means master or person exercising absolute authority, a person exercising absolute ownership of rights. And so a question for us to ponder is, what eternal purposes and fruit are you missing out on by failing to understand that Jesus Christ is kurios? to understand that Jesus Christ is master? And have you given up the rights to your life, your decisions, and your future, recognizing that Jesus has absolute authority over you and over all things? And I believe that it's, that it's not until we can come to this personal understanding of Jesus Christ as kurios, not until we come to an understanding that we don't have ownership of our lives, that we, like these men, are bond servants of Christ, that we don't dictate our plans, that we have a master who rules all of heaven and all of earth, that we have a master who rules all of our lives. Until we come to an understanding that Jesus Christ is kurios, we will not respond faithfully to the call of God. We just won't. There are, too many, there are too many other things calling for our attention to serve them as master. There are too many things in our culture, too many things in our society that desire to be your master, that desire to be my master. And so God has called us to serve one master, and so if we are to be like Paul and Silas and, and Luke and Timothy, then we first have to be ready to go. We also have to be ready to boldly speak the gospel. We need to be ready to suffer affliction and persecution and opposition because those who, who desire to serve the Lord will be persecuted. And as Paul said, uh, that it's by many afflictions that we enter the kingdom of God. And so we need to be those who are ready for that affliction. But, it, but we will not be faithful to any of those aspects of serving God until we understand that Jesus Christ is kurios. He has absolute authority over us, even if we don't acknowledge it. He does. And so we need to be ready to be those who say, 
yes, master, your will be done. To wake up every day and say, your will be done. You are master. You are Lord of all. Have your way. And so as we think about applying this, how, how do we apply this? How do we apply this as a church family? How do we apply this as individuals who seek to honor and glorify God in our lives? And so I want to leave you with thinking about how do I make this practical? How do I practically say, Jesus Christ, you are Lord, you are curios? And it may just start with how your attitude when you return home tonight. Is the Lord Lord of your home? Is he Lord of your home? You have an opportunity to display him as Lord of your home tonight or to, to not do that. And so let's start there. And then tomorrow, is he Lord of your day? If you're going off to work, is he Lord as you approach work? If you're going off to school, is he Lord as you approach school? As you interact with people all day, is he Lord in the way I speak to those I interact with? Is he Lord in the way that I respond to those who mistreat me? Is Christ Lord? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word tonight, for the example that Paul and his faithful companions have shown us and how to model faithfulness to you. Lord, I pray that amid all the distractions of life that we can be those that you find faithful, that we would be those that you would declare of well done, good and faithful servant as we look to enter into the joy of the Father. And so, Lord, would you help us uh, as individuals to be faithful to go and faithful to speak and faithful when opposed, faithful when afflicted for the gospel and faithful to the brethren. Help us to be faithful, Father, to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.